0: Don't follow. Please don't give up on the actions because this is about me. I would still be praying on my knees today whether my granddaughter kneeled next to me or not, but I am very, very grateful to the God of my understanding that he allowed me to have that experience because it began the process of me being able to heal myself and to know that I did the best I could with the light I had to see by, and my light is getting bright. You know, as our theme for the conference is, out of the darkness into the light, and my light is getting brighter, and I don't have to tell people I'm recovering. I, You will see my recovery if I'm doing the footwork. I'm open to hugs today not only receiving but giving and uh, that was an assignment in my early days of recovery I had to learn how to receive the love and also to go out there and hug people I didn't know Um encouragement from others not only sponsors but friends in the program and one day one of the greatest things this happened and it was at the moment it was it was a simple thing, but it was one of these things that was monumental to me in, in my own personal recovery and my self-worth and my self-esteem. My son and his wife lived in uh, Hollywood, Florida. And um, that's where they were when he found out he had AIDS. And the lady who was my sponsor at the time was going to speak in Hollywood, Florida, and her husband was sick and he couldn't join her. And she said to me, were you not planning... To go and see Scott and I said yes and she says well why don't you work it out so you go and see him and then you come and you be my guest at this convention which by the way happened to be less than a couple of miles away from where my children were living so I went I spent a week with my children Um, that was the last time that they tested Sarah to see if she was HIV and it was a real um, it was one of those times where the fear in those kids was unbelievable and um and she you know that it's one of those things where they do the blood work and then they had to wait a lot of days and they're and they're on pins and needles and they kept testing her to make sure that she was not hiv um she was born she was born showing signs but it was just the um antibodies from her mother's um from her mother's blood and uh when on the 14th month which is which was the july of 1989 was the last time that they were going to test her to make sure that she was e- either was or was not positive and um, so we, I stayed there with those kids that week and just tried to be support for them I mean they were terrified and so was I and at the end of that week um, we still didn't know the results but I got to go and meet my sponsor at this hotel, and spend this weekend with her, and it was wonderful. She, She's upbeat and loving, and and even though her husband was not well, we had a wonderful time together. And she talked on Saturday morning, and I wore a dress with a belt, and we got dressed, and we went down, and I felt just very good about myself that day. That night, they were having kind of a little evening where you wore sundresses, and she had a beautiful little sundress that some of her cleavage showed, and she just looked absolutely dazzling, and I had brought my favorite brown paisley number with me, and actually, it was the only number I had, but it was my favorite dress, and it started to flow at the armpits and 17 yards later at the bottom was a large ruffle. It had big push-up sleeves with ruffles around here, and it was, you know, I just thought I was a class act. You know, I, mean, I put my hair back, I was growing my hair along at that time. Uh, I wanted to have a ponytail by my 50th birthday, and I was in that process. And so um I was in the process of having this hair, and it was humid and hot, and you know, and I mean, I just looked at myself in the mirror and I saw nothing but just ravaging beauty And um, we went out and enjoyed the evening, and um, obviously she bit her tongue for the whole evening. And when we got upstairs and got started to get undressed, she looked at me, and she says, Don't ever wear that dress again. (laughs) (laughs) Not without a belt anyhow, but she says, I would really prefer you didn't wear that dress at all. And, And I'm like crushed. And then she said to me, Beverly, you have got a body most women would die for, and she says, you have hidden it under this hundred yards of material, you know, but I didn't know how not to do that. And she took a risk of hurting my feelings to help me to see myself for what I was because I couldn't see what she saw. And that's the reason we depend on each other here because we can't see what other people see in us. We have to just believe what you tell us and, and until we can believe for ourselves. And I could not believe in myself enough to know that I was what she saw. Now, I want to tell you that a year ago I was shopping for an outfit and it had a blouse that didn't have a waistline or uh, didn't get tucked in. She told me I was never to wear jeans, shorts, anything without tucking it in. And I mean, it was like I was so afraid because I figured she would be peeking at me from across the United States to see if I was tucking in my shirt. (laughs) And I bought something that hung out, you know, and I thought, oh, dear God, I hope she doesn't see me. (laughs) So it's kind of, you know, it. but it was the most wonderful gift anybody has ever given me in this entire program ever because it helped me so much and at the moment it happened I was heartbroken I was just devastated but I realized it was a gift of love that was beyond anything I had ever received Um, when I decided to grow this hair long I decided to grow this hair long for one reason and one reason only when I was 10 years old I had hair that was about down my back my grandmother was not living with us at the time and so it was a mess and my dad came home from work, I lived in Chicago, it was Chicago, it's hot, and this hair is like stuck everywhere. You know, I probably, I think I had it in a hairnet to try to keep it out of my eyes, but it must have been, I must have been a sight. And my father came in and he said to my mother, do something with that kid's hair. I remember it as if it happened yesterday, do something with that kid's hair. So that was the end of that conversation. We did dishes, we did, you know, had dinner, did the dishes, and after dinner she braided my hair, And she took a scissors and she cut the hair off at the back of my neck. And from that day until the day I decided that I was going to grow my hair long, I wore it so short it was, I mean, unbelievable. My kids always said to me, it was during the time of Farrah Fawcett where femininity was just ablaze, and here I am in my little butch boy haircuts, and and my um, one son said to me, you know, Mom, you're the only mother who comes to the school, and you're the only one who ever looks like a boy, and so, um, but I couldn't do it until I got well, until I started to gain some self-esteem, and I decided to grow my hair and have a ponytail by my 50th birthday And so along with that, you can't have a gray ponytail if you're gonna, if you're gonna do this. So I, I dyed it flaming red. I mean, it was just, it was unbelievable. Ellen knows. (laughs) She knows. And I thought, Little pom poms and poofos and clips and barrettes, and I learned how to French braid, and and I wore it on the side. You know how we used to. They a couple of years ago, the ponytails were out here. I had mine out here, and and I did everything you could possibly do with long hair. I tucked it up. I rolled it under. I I did everything with it. And then one day, I got up. And I knew. I, actually, I grew it till I was 52, and I decided the challenge would be until it got to my boobs, and then I'd cut it off. <laughs> and it got there, and then I still decided to keep it. And and one day I woke up and knew I had healed. Whatever I needed to do, whatever had ha- had to happen about this hair had happened, and I was done with the hair. And at the same time, I also decided to let it grow out gray, which was a real it was. I mean. It was just, uh, I, gray, (laughs) you? And so simultaneously I I went to the shop and I got my hair cut off and I never colored it again. And one day as I was really debating whether or not that was the best thing for me, one of my friends in Al-Anon looked at me and she says, You know, Beverly, God is an artist and and it gave me the courage to continue on with what I thought was right for me. And a lot of women in my group said to me, you know, you're going to look 15 years older if you let your hair grow out gray. But what I have come to realize in this program is that a lot of times when people give you that kind of advice, it's from their own fears. And what they were really fearing was their own aging process. And I had come to believe that I knew that I was having, I was in the process of a spiritual facelift and a spiritual uplift and, and I was somebody I'd never been before and I certainly wasn't going to be afraid of gray hair. And, uh, you know, I want to be a free spirit. I don't want to be attached to the little bow and squeezing all that. And, and red is so messy. It's just so messy. I'd have red scalp for days after I did that. So I cut, I, I let the hair grow and then I decided to cut it off. And in the process of that, one day I looked in the mirror. And I, bl- and I saw somewhere between the age of 49 and 52 that I had green eyes and I was in the program a long time by that time I did not know the color of my eyes I had never been able to look at myself even putting on mascara you can make your eyes go to the side you don't have to look at yourself exactly when you're putting on your makeup if your self-esteem is not in order And the day that I looked in the mirror and realized I had green eyes, I realized that I was really getting well. And so today I know what color eyes I have. And you know what else? When I could look in the mirror at my own eyes, I can now look in your eyes. And I know if you have blue eyes or brown eyes or green eyes because I'm not afraid to look you in the eye. Sometimes that is so threatening to a newcomer that they can't stand that and they'll look away and you will have to have so much compassion for that because they're like a little frightened creature. But I am not afraid to look another person in the eye today. I believe that that is because we risk being vulnerable, not only to ourselves, but to another human being. To ask for help, enjoy who you are, gain self-confidence, look for your creative gifts. I challenge you to do that. Do you know what God-given gifts you own? I did not know when I got here. Um, I was in the program five or six years when all of a sudden I saw some pictures that were taken with a 35 millimeter camera. And um, out of somewhere inside of me it says, Beverly, you got to have one of those. And, and I didn't know what that was all about. So I clipped uh, the um, photography ad out of the newspaper and I was sticking it on my husband's windshield because I had never asked for a present. We're married at that time, over 20 years, and I had never asked for a present. I had never asked for anything that would have cost more than $2. And here I'm looking at a 35-millimeter camera, which I thought was a couple of hundred dollars, but what I didn't realize is they don't come with a lens. <laughs> For that, You have to add a lens and a flash attachment and a bag and a battery and film and, and I don't know, tax, and all of a sudden, you know, you are really up there by the time you've bought a camera. But I kept putting the berry's ad on my husband's windshield, and he thought that I was doing a good deed by keeping the dew off his windshield, <laughs> and he'd just take the newspaper off and drive off to work. And um, it was for Mother's Day that I wanted this camera. And I to, and I did not know why I was in such hot pursuit of this camera. I mean, I I couldn't even think of anything I was going to use it for, but I was like driven to have this camera. So on the day on the eve of. Mother's Day, um, my husband accidentally said to me, why have you been putting newspapers on the front of my car? And I said to him, well, I said, I would like a 35 millimeter camera, so I've been putting the berry's ads on your windshield thinking that you would get the idea. And he said, well, why didn't you just come out and ask? And I, you know what, I don't know how to ask for what I need. I think you can read my mind. I don't know how to ask my husband to help me do the dishes. I don't know how to ask my husband to take the garbage out. You see, I have a husband who is absolutely willing to do anything if I ask. He can't read my mind. And I didn't ask for the camera. I just figured he could read my mind. So we hopped in the car, and he took me to Barry's. And then as I was realizing the total cost of what this camera was going to really cost me, I looked at him, and I said, I don't think we should do this. And he said, no, we're going to buy the camera. So we bought the camera, and I read the manual, and I started to take pictures. And it wasn't too long before people were saying, God, Beverly, your pictures are really beautiful. And then I couldn't figure out how to run the camera. I had it five years, and I didn't know about the aperture and the light and everything else, and, and how you get texture and quality to your pictures. So I took a class. And we're in the class, and there's about 10 of us there. It was just at the little community center in my town and the first thing out of this instructor's mouth was he says, at the end of 10 weeks I will teach each of you how to take a quality picture and he says and that's all that we're going to expect here he says, you will get a picture at the end of this class that you'll be proud of but he says if you're thinking by the end of 10 weeks you're going to be Ansel Adams he said those are people who have a gift and he said everybody who comes in with a 35 millimeter camera and starts to take pictures does not have the gift So we got our first assignment, we went out and took our little pictures, got them developed and come back to class. And he was paying more attention to other people than he was to me. He kind of looked at my things rather quickly, I thought. And he was spending a lot of time critiquing other people. And see, I come from the family where, when I was born, I didn't get any attention because of alcoholism and then when I was seven my sister came along and I didn't want her and I didn't want my brother and I have always been very needy and needed a lot of attention and that drove me to obnoxious behavior, real obnoxious behavior. I thought if I got louder and bigger than life then I could draw you to me. What I didn't realize is it pushed you away. So I still get into places where I feel like if I'm not getting enough. Attention, I feel threatened, and I made an instant judgment that the instructor didn't like me. He liked everybody in our class better than me, so he goes around the whole class and critiques their pictures, and then he takes my little book of pictures and he opened it up, and all that he said was, "This lady has the gift and um and it's, <laughs> it's I tried to sell it you know and it doesn't work I have to give it away and um, part of what the little um, things that you'll get tomorrow the bookmarks are part of my gift and um, what I realized is that a lot of our gifts are not to be sold they're to be given we just keep giving and giving and giving and so that's what I learned about my gift and um, I also found out that I can crochet I thought everybody could crochet I thought everybody could knit. I thought everybody could cook. I have two daughter-in-laws that do not know where the kitchen is. (laughs) Do not. The two sons that I would not let cook are now, my one son turned into, it was a chef before he died. And my other son is turning into a gourmet cook. You know, they didn't, I promise you, when they got married, they did not know how to boil water to make instant oatmeal. And, um, and, you know, they literally have each married women who do not cook. I thought it was a, I thought it was something every woman knew how to do and loved. Not true. This is the end of. T- and I don't know if I express to you um, exactly why that's necessary, but finding your t- creativity is getting in touch with your with your inner God. You know, with with the God within, because the, the expression of our gifts is finding the God within, and then ha- and then once you find the gift. You know, then you then you have a responsibility to develop the gift because it's not there to be wasted. So, um, <clears throat> find your gifts. It's another one of the things that I challenge you to do. If you don't think you have any, you do not a uh, single. Person that is born is born without something creative within them. And I believe it's a part of our recovery to, um, to find those creative gifts. I also wanted to tell you I'm wearing a belt today. Several of you were concerned that I had a dress that did not have a waistline on yesterday, but I want you to know I am wearing a belt today. And somebody else said to me, um, uh, that they, uh, that they did not, that they wanted me to focus on the principles of the program and and whether or not i am actually naming them i am focusing on them because i'm talking about love and tolerance and uh... and trust and god and uh... hope honesty i'm talking about all those things so the principles are here although i am not exactly naming them by name they are actually woven in to what i'm talking about in the development of myself Um, When I finished off yesterday, I was talking about the creative gifts, and then I wanted to just run through two or three more things and then go on to my other relationships. Um, I talked to you yesterday about these these clothes that I wear, and I don't know how you are, but I have thrown away about seven women's wardrobes because when we don't know who we are, we don't know what to wear. And so we look at somebody else and we say, oh, she looks fabulous in that green dress. And we run out to Macy's, and we hunt for the green dress. And when we get home, we put on the green dress expecting that we are going to feel the way that person looked in the green dress. But what we come to realize is that it wasn't our dress, and that we don't feel any different. And there's that disappointment, and you hang that dress back up in the closet, and you will never wear it again because it's not who you are. And so on Easter Sunday of this year, I had a terribly black day, probably one of the blackest days that I've had since um, I, the day I walked into the program. But what I realized is that I think I what I know for a fact is that it was a final surrender on some things that have been troubling me. And I, and I went into this blackness and when I came out of it, I was they were gone. Uh, that day I went into my closet and I got rid of the other woman's, the last woman's clothes. <laughs> my husband knew I was having a bad day and he says, what are you doing? And I, and I says, nothing. And I says, I'm just getting rid of some clothes. And then when he saw me putting them in the trunk of my car, he really got worried. But she's all gone now. <laughs> he didn't know he was living with seven or eight different people. Um so, anyhow, finding who you are is not about looking at another woman and seeing if you if you see it 's what we came here thinking is that on the outside, we were looking at people 's outsides, but what you see in me that you might be attracted to that you want what I have or you want what Carol has or you want what br or any of these women have is not about what's on the outside it's about what's coming up from the inside and it's reflecting in the shiny of our eyes and and you know learning how to take care of ourselves and you know and the stress is gone and and we hold our shoulders up higher and and we can look people in the eye and walk into a room without feeling like all the eyes are staring on us Elsa Chamberlain said one of the most profoundly wonderful things that I've ever heard, and she says, we worry so much about what people think of us if we knew how little they do. (laughs) You know, we are so self-centered. So, um, Sandy, have we got air in here today? Oh, okay. Um, My hormone maybe hasn't taken effect yet. Um, The other thing I talked about yesterday was food. And that has been a comfort thing for me all of my time, all my life. You know, I ate candy bars and smoked cigarettes. You know, it was a, it was just something to be doing with my hands and my mouth. And, uh, and I was real thin when I walked in here and I was high wired. You know, when you do nothing but put caffeine and sugar in your body, you're a little, you're a little jumpy. (laughs) And so, um, today I, I really take a look at my diet. I'm not obsessed with it. Um, I've realized that I will fluctuate up and down, you know, a little bit and it's going to be okay. The main goal for me is to make sure that about 85% of the time what I'm eating is good for me. And I've made some decisions and I eat pretty much the same thing every day and then you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to have an obsession. But if, you know, I, it, and I'm not here to tell you about OA or anything else, it's, but I think that what I eat also helps What, who I am on the inside, how I feel and everything. Exercise regularly. The way that I could maintain that goal was I got myself an 80-pound golden retriever, and she and I are both half nuts, and we get out there and, and have a great time together. She's my soulmate. I, I, she's going to be five years old on, in October. She was born on my mother's birthday, and I have the opinion that perhaps she was a gift from my mother of unconditional love. Um. I try, I told you I get enough sleep, brush my teeth, I buy myself flowers, have a pedicure. And, and I go to meetings and sponsor some beautiful women. And I have, for the most part, forgiven myself for most things. Now, there are things that every once in a while will crop up, which is God's way of releasing these little things to us as we can accept them. So just because I think I have forgiven myself for everything that I've done so far doesn't mean that it's actually so, because all of a sudden one day I might be sitting minding my own business and God said, today's the day I'll reveal this little piece of information to you. And what it does is give me an opportunity for further growth. Um, one of the things that I have said to my children is that I knew that I was responsible for most of the problems that they had in their life today, but their recovery was their responsibility, and I hold that true for myself. If I blame anything about who and what and where I came from on my mother or my father or the past alcoholism, I am going to get stuck in a rut. I cannot blame any longer. I have to take responsibility for my life. I was raised in an alcoholic home and that stuff just happens. And if I walk around the rest of my life martyring over that, I am never going to get well so I I have taken on not only did I give my sons the gift of saying I know that I was a mess and we had a lot of problems but your recovery is your responsibility I also let my mother off the hook and my father off the hook by saying I know that there was a mess in that house but I have been given 12 steps to recovery and my recovery is my responsibility and I choose not to martyr in that gutter anymore I don't want to live there anymore I want to read something to you from the Blueprint for Progress, Um, and I changed the words from ours and a we to my because I wanted it to be in, like if I was saying it. It says, living with an alcoholic seriously affects my feelings of self-worth. Guilt from thinking that I caused the problem, doubt in my own ability to do anything right, and fear of change develop develop into a real sense of self-hatred. I try to conceal my feelings, but invariably they express themselves in my general disposition towards life. And as I continue to be filled with feelings of worthlessness, I find myself increasingly unable to show any amount of real warmth and concern for others. Al-Anon offers a new beginning with a positive understanding that I am dealing with an illness. I can start to surrender these negative feelings. I can turn my attention to myself and recognize my own human limitations. I can learn to accept myself and become willing to change my attitudes for the better. Through the Al-Anon program, I can accept the help of other people in the group, and my faith in a higher power grows so does my and as my faith in a higher power grows, so does my faith and self confidence. Also in the Blueprint for Progress, there's a wonderful thing on maturity. And I believe as we develop a relationship with God, a relationship, a strong foothold in our Al Anon <laughs> recovery, and we start to practice the principles and do the footwork that and, and begin to have a relationship with ourselves. What happens is we become mature. And I was obnoxious and loud, <clears throat> and I still can get like that if I'm put in, you know, when I feel threatened or whatever, I can still, that old person can come up. But for the most part, I feel like in the last five years I have become a mature woman. That does not mean I am an old woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am not an old woman. Uh, the numbers that might be startling, but I am not. <laughs> <laughs> I am not an old woman, (laughs) Um, but in the Blueprint for Progress, uh, it says maturity. Maturity is the art of living in peace with that which we cannot change. Maturity is simply being grown up. It is the quality in people which helps them to balance their intellects and their emotions so that their behavior is appropriate. The ability to do right... Things at the right time requires a clear-eyed view of situations and people and an understanding of human limitations. Mature people resist extremes, have realistic self-images and responsible goals, and have learned to accept responsibility for their own actions. The only expectations they have are for themselves, and the only inventories they take are their own. And I think that's a fabulous, uh, thing. The little handouts I brought more up, if you didn't get them, talks about your feelings and, uh, and I don't know how you were, but I did not have any when I got here. I also would like to challenge you to kind of get familiar with your can of worms, those character defects which pop up over and over and over again, and they will never go away. God has sent you down here with your own little can, and, um, and each of our little can contains Some of the same worms and some different worms, but my worms, actually I have 13 worms in my can, and they cause me a lot of problems on a regular basis. Perfectionism is my large worm. That's my mother worm. Uh, (laughs) Financial insecurity is my father worm. Sibling rivalry is my next biggest worm. And you know what? I thought after I did my inventory about my sister and got my relationship with my sister right that my sibling rivalry little project was gone. Not true. Not true. I have continued through my 15 and a half, or 16 and a half years in Al-Anon to have sibling rivalry with my fellow Al-Anons. They're going to have more than I get. They're going to, somebody's going to like you better, and they're going to get a, a more of the attention than I'm getting. And I promise you, sibling rivalry causes me a lot of trouble. And my, you can, if you don't believe me, you can call my my sponsor. She is tired of hearing about it. <laughs> um, my fourth worm. I don't think is a very big one but my husband thinks it's a terribly large worm and that is my need to be right. <laughs> 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 we have a little trouble with that one. Um, my other worm is my need to be accepted. For you to tell me add a girl you did great, did a good job. You know, we all need that, but when I when that's out of balance and I feel insecure, my need to be accepted is like huge. I am critical. That, I hope, is, you know, I'm not talking about these things being who I am today, but these are the things that pop up on a regular basis and continue to cause me problems because none of our character defects are ever gone. They're they're contingent on our spiritual maintenance. I am controlling. I am a martyr. Uh, you know, I have a scar on my hand, and that was from going like this. <laughs> And when I was about two years in the program, I had this cyst removed from my hand, and I have this large scar, and it just reminds me how much I suffered. (laughs) I'm a blamer, because if I can make it your fault, I can be okay. And, uh, you know, that does not work for me today because if I'm trying to take responsibility for my own actions and my own attitudes, blaming you for who I am is not going to work anymore. And uh, so blaming, complaining really is not so much of a problem with me. However, I did just complain about the air, didn't I? <laughs> See, we're not always aware of those things. Um, I am addicted to excitement, and I wish I could tell you that was about fireworks and and big band music and stuff like that. I am addicted to alcoholic excitement, getting a little fight stirred up when I'm restless, irritable, and discontent, and trying to get my husband to kind of jump in that bag with me and feed that energy. And when we were... About a year in the program, he threw a tape of Nell Largent in my front seat of my car, and he says, here, listen to her. She might help you. <laughs> oh, dear. And I thought hell would freeze over till I put that tape in the cassette player. But it, like, called me. It kept saying, listen to me, Beverly. Put me in there. And I did, you know. And I fell in love with Nell, and the, and the next week I met her for the first time, and that was a real wonderful thing. Resentments. And, and as my sponsor one time told me that resentments are the number one killer of your relationships, not only with your husband, but with your peers. So um, now I'd also would like to challenge you not only to look at your negative can of worms, but I would like to challenge you to find your positive can of worms. And sometimes it takes uh, uh, reading something. If you can read something that's very affirming and you can believe that to be true for you, that might be what you need to use to um, feel connected to who you are. And um, and I found this thing, which I'm not finding right now, um, that was really a beautiful, a beautiful writing. Um, hmm. I have it here. <clears throat> Well, maybe I'm not going to read it to you after all. It'll—I'll come across it. It's um, called—it was called purple. It was in a uh, little shop in Seattle, and it was about a purple person. And if you like purple, these are your qualities. And um, oh, here it is. And I decided to call this my affirmation for positiveness because I could look at this and I thought, if I am not all these things, this is who I want to be. It says the profile of the purple person is you are imaginative, sensitive, artistic, and sophisticated. You have noble ideals and a keen appreciation for the cultural. You are alert, demanding, foresighted, confident, resourceful, spontaneous, and highly independent, which drives my husband crazy. But I like that quality in myself. Um, I am dependent to a degree that I am highly independent. You take delight in the beautiful, the gracious, the sensitive, but maintain an attitude of critical appraisal. In love, you seek to attain magical qualities and and refuse to settle for anything less. You refuse to be swept off your feet unless genuineness and integrity can be absolutely ascertained. You are active in support of the things you believe in and are concerned with the pursuit of truth and other human values. You take chances and believe that you must do so to make the most of what life has to offer you. Purple is an exclusive color, mystical in quality, blending the two extremes of the spectrum, red and blue. Traditionally, purple represents splendor, dignity, royalty, and wealth. Well. (laughs) purple is a unique color and it is truly a unique individual who holds it dear and when I look at that I think to myself if I do not own all those qualities that is who I want to be so I challenge you to find your qualities now I'm going to go on to talk about my relationships with my husband and my children my parents uh, money and and uh, we're going to close this down real close to um, 1030 and it, our program says to come back today at two o'clock but with the luncheon being over at 2 and I'm thinking they've given us a two-hour section of time so that we had time to go to the bathroom and whatnot we could probably be back here at 2 15 and and have some time to breath, breathe and stretch my relationship with George consisted of 20 years of active drinking and almost 16 years of sobriety or a little, actually it was about, we're going to go into our we're in 16 and a half, but and there was a lot of destruction there. We entered into that relationship sick. Sick attracts sick. We were very, very sick. The program promise is, is that if you do not grow together you can't, you know, you grow apart. And over the years we have had times where George and I have grown together and grown very, very distant and and had a lot of problems and we have we have had that time you know after just before our son died and and after <clears throat> we were very, very grown apart it was it was a very difficult time. There was no foundation to my relationship with my husband. he was coming out out of a divorce um, his his wife of six months was pregnant. Um, we couldn 't get married until she actually had the baby, and um, it, you know my mother my, I wanted out of that house so bad i couldn 't stand it and so I looked at him as an escape route and he looked at me you know he was as the devastation from the one thing was happening, I was going to fill that place you know and um, and that 's how we came together i mean that 's about as sick as it gets, but if you look at it, you know if you married an an active alcoholic. You, It was sick, attracted sick. You were at the same level of, of despair. Um, we have had no communication skills, and it's one of the more difficult areas of our life, is trying to talk to each other and having each other understand what we're actually saying. And some of the tools that I have been taught to use is to actually say to him, did you understand what I just said? Can I repeat it to you? Because I can I can tell by his answer that he's not answering the question I asked. And so I'm learning how when I realize that I he's not answering the question I asked to say, I don't think you understood the question, you know, and, and to and to risk um, to risk repeating the question. There was a lot of resentment. You know, twenty years of active alcoholism, you are gonna walk into the program of Al Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous with a lot of resentment and it's going to take a long time to heal those things up you know but what i was also told by my sponsor was that i could only live in today that once i went to sleep she said to me i could not wake up on yesterday's problems and that i was to kiss my husband goodnight every night no matter what i was thinking or feeling and i know that my husband and i that he also doesn't wake up with a, with a terribly active resentment because no matter how I have behaved the night before, I get a cup of coffee at 7 o'clock in the morning or whenever I call for it. You know, if I wake up a little earlier and ask him if the coffee's ready, he'll bring me a cup of coffee. In. And I know that there are mornings when if I was in the reverse role of that, I would say, you get up and get your own damn coffee. Um, so... He is my most difficult relationship, and I believe that the marriage relation will always be the most difficult relation, and that is because we mirror each other's character defects. And that's really the only problem in, in, in most alcoholic marriages, if you're not suffering from brutal abuse or, you know, that we mirror each other's problems. And when the other person, you know, pops up with one of their character defects, and it, it's you're looking at yourself. And there's a spiritual axiom. I I came into the Louisville group, and I went to meetings there as well as going to meetings in uh, Dallas, but there was the spiritual axiom on the wall. As you walked in the door, they had the big spiritual axiom sitting there. And the spiritual axiom says that no matter how you're feeling, no matter what the problem, there's something wrong with you. So however you are responding to your spouse... You really need to check out your own defect, you know, to see what it is about you. Insecurity, your need to be right, why is there conflict, why is there disagreement, why are you feeling these things? Because it's your responsibility to take care of yourself and not blame how you feel on the other person. In the dilemma of the alcoholic marriage, on page 36, it talks about courtesy. And the very first meeting that I was asked to chair, I was about three months in the program. I had sweat rolling down to my waist. My eyes were twittering. And yet I was so I was so humbled by the fact that you thought you could call on me and say chair a meeting. And I wanted you to think that I had it all together for a three-month-old. And so I sat down with the dilemma of the alcoholic marriage. And I came across this paragraph 16 years ago. And I believe that it is, if I can remember this paragraph in my daily Living experiences with my husband, I'm going to be much better off because it says keeping in mind the word courtesy helped to remind me that my husband is other things besides a husband. He is a man, a person, an individual. He is a man who does a job, earns a living. He is a helping hand to troubled people in AA. He is a person whose life experiences are totally different from mine. He is a mind. He is a soul. He's a set of emotions unique in every way. He is a person to be respected, to be considerate of, to treat always with courtesy. And I believe that you can take that paragraph and put a son or a daughter or a mother or a father in there. But we have this, I believe that as a part of the principles of this program that we're trying to practice, it is to put these, put this to practice in all of our Relationships to remember that other people have a mind and a soul and their own life experiences. And that, you know, I think one of the simplest, it sounds a little sarcastic, but I think it's a wonderful way, is that, you know, I am reminded all the time it's not about me. Somebody else, is, the way they respond to me, react to me, it's not about me. And I don't have to take it so personally. And um, it's kind of a flip thing, but... That's just, you know, that's where I am right now is to remind myself that they are human beings with their own set of deal and it's not about me. Uh, courtesy generates courtesy and change takes time. Just because you decide that today you're going to make an amend and walk up to your spouse or your, or your your child or a loved one and say, please accept my apology for the way, for my part in this disagreement. Please don't think it's going to change forever and ever. They might, Be still so angry, they walk out and slam a door and, you know, tell you what you can do with your amend. Or, or they might, or, or they might be so stunned by it and then you think to yourself, wow, it's all going to be different from now on. And it's maybe not going to be. Change takes time. It's our responsibility to persevere because what we're talking about is our own development, our own journey, our own, uh, Character defects being put into perspective and becoming the block, you know, th- between God and I, He's chipping away everything that I developed as a through the through alcoholism that wasn't Beverly, and so recovery is for me, for me always. Um, I have developed um, over the years, you know, I have this need to be right. So I can't always surrender a right idea. Even though my husband might not agree with my idea, I still have the right to my idea. But if it turns out that we don't use my idea, I can surrender not using my idea with dignity. And just be okay with it. I gave you my idea. If you decide that you don't want to use my idea, you can surrender that law. It's a loss. You know, it's like you take it so personally because you feel like you've lost, you know. And in the spiritual world, there is no competition. So you didn't lose. You, what you, what you did was you expressed yourself. How many of us did not express ourselves before we got into this program, stuffed our ideas, stuffed whether or not we didn't want to go or, or and, and, and we're afraid to make waves. And we didn't express ourselves no matter what we were feeling because I don't know about you, one of the other worms in my can is fear of angry people. Anytime I expressed an idea before I turned 20, I got nailed to a wall. You know, I was not allowed to have an idea. I was to be seen and not heard. Now it's real, it's real difficult to have an opinion and be, and take responsibility for myself and to express my idea risking that I could still get nailed to a wall. I mean, it doesn't happen anymore, but the little person inside of me that remembers that is often afraid to express an idea. Um, The more I forgive myself for the past, the better my life works. Um, Some of the things that my husband and I do to help To restore and rejuvenate our marriage is in 1990 when my father died we realized that it was one of our first realizations that you know life is just about today and that we're to get up each day and make the very most of today because we don't know if there's going to be a tomorrow and so we can't we have no no more right really to sit in a chair and say well I was thinking about that and maybe in about five years I might you know if you have something you want to do Get after it. You know, go do it. Plan for it. Get a piggy bank out. Drop $5 in there. There's a bunch of gals that I talked to in Gainesville, Texas, last week, and they want to come to Crested Butte next year, and they go, God, that's such a big financial commitment. And I said, believe it or not, somebody figured it out, and if you put a piggy bank out and drop $5 in that piggy bank religiously every week, you will have enough money to go to Crested Butte next year. I mean, so make... Go towards your goals. You know, have a goal and go towards it. So one of our things was we realized after my father died that we had not been taking vacations. We're self-employed. We have a little business, and, and we really have to be conscientious about the amount of time that we spend in it because, um, you know, it doesn't generate a lot of revenue. So we tend to work all day at it. You know, you you just do that. When you're self-employed and it's in your house, we're open all the time. So um, we decided to take a vacation, and that was a real wonderful, nurturing thing for us to do. The first year, we bought an airplane ticket to San Francisco. We we rented a car, and the rest of it was up to God. And it was a fabulous, fabulous vacation. The next thing that in January and towards the end of December after Christmas and through most of January, my husband and I don't tend to be very busy in our business, so we go see a lot of movies. Uh, it, th- the rest of the year we don't see very many movies, but we go see movies, a lot of them. We, we just, uh, we just go two or three movies a week, catch up on it. You know, most of them are not all that good, but we go anyhow. One of the things we just did that was awesome, we took our little granddaughter Sarah to see the Star Wars trilogy. Picked her up every day after school at 3 o'clock. Took her to the matinee. We bought the hugest bucket of popcorn that you can have refilled as many times as you want to. And we sat and we watched the Star Wars trilogy. And I had never seen that before. I believe it came out in the early 70s or the late 60s. I had never seen Star Wars. Now, I didn't realize that Return of the Jedi was a terribly spiritual movie. It was an incredibly spiritual movie. And and a couple of days before school was let out, Sarah came home with a a wonderful report card grade-wise. But in the comments, it reminded me of me when I was a child. and, And I got my old report cards out about five or eight years ago and was reading them. And I was a very disruptive, unruly child. I was just... I was dying for attention and didn't know how to go about getting it, so my comment columns and all of my report cards from one till eighth grade was that I was unruly, I was disruptive, I had to stand in the corner, I had on the dunce cap, they sent me home, they sent me to the principal, you know, we don't know what to do with her. And so, lo and behold, here's my precious Sarah, got a report card with all good grades and there she's unruly, she doesn't keep her mouth shut, she disturbs the class. And we're sitting out on the swing, and see, if al and AA haven't done anything else, they have encouraged Sarah to be safe to talk about her feelings. And so we're sitting out there, and she said to me, you know what, Nanny, she says, I just, I don't know what happens. When Scott was dying, we, they chose to keep her away from people because if she would have gotten a little cold or flu, they were afraid that could have killed Scott. So this child did not interact with other children till, she, till after Scott died, and she was almost four years old. I didn't believe that that was a good thing, um, but Scott was terrified, and it was not mine to interfere, so I went along with that. I did, however, sneak her off to Horizon from time to time and put her in the nursery so she had some interaction with kids. Um, <clears throat> and then I paid the price for that because it was a definite no-no. Mm-hmm. So she developed imaginary friends. There was Cockala, and Cockala was a mean little brat. Oh, she was awful. And Amy was a sweet little girl that liked to do everything that Sarah liked to do, and then there was, um, let's see, Kakala, Amy. Um, oh well, there, there they go. There were four of them, and I'll think of them. Uh, Numa, and um, and I can't. Re- it'll, it'll come. Anyhow, Kakala was a brat, and Numa and Amy were pretty nice kids to have around the house, and so we always enjoyed having having Numa and Amy. But when Ka- when Scott died, we decided we were going to send. Cocola to Carol and we put her on an airplane and sent her to Los Angeles. <laughs> we did. <laughs> we went to the airport and we put we put Cockla on an airplane. So anyhow, every once in a while when Sarah is just behaving very badly, I think that Carol has sent cockola home. And I'll say to, I'll say to Sarah, is Cockala here again? And she'll go, oh yeah. And I said, well let's get her back to California as soon as possible. <laughs> so we're sitting out on the patio and she's telling me about how she hates herself for her behavior in class, but doesn't know what to do about it. And I says, well, honey, do you think that cockle is back? And she says, I don't know what happens. And I said to her, do you remember the return of the Jedi? And I said, when Luke Skywalker went to see the little the, the Jedi or in the, or the little Yoda. Yoda in the woods, and, the, and he was very old, and, and, he went, and he said to him, find the inner power to not let Dark Vader, to not fear Dark Vader, that he was going to have to go in and, and meet Dark Vader with no fears or, or Dark Vader would always rule his life. And I said to, to her, I said, you have to be like Luke Skywalker. You have to, um, you have to find your inner power. You have to not go in and, and join Dark Vader and go into the dark side. I said, you have to stay on the side of light and i thought to myself she could understand that and it didn't make her better that moment but she could visualize luke skywalker and dark vader and and you know the the whole star wars thing and and it was easy to talk to her about it i was absolutely blown away that she was able to say i don't like who i am when i'm like that you know how many of us when we were eight years old could sit with your grandmother and say i don't like who i am when i act like that and um My husband and I have a mutual love for our pets, um, our grandchildren. What happened is I, I just, during this time of darkness in our marriage, I could not see that my husband had a sensitive bone in his body. I mean, all I could see was his anger. But what you taught me, and I kept forgetting over and over as we walked through this grief, which I didn't understand how how much it encompassed us it took over every cell of our being it it, it t- and and we acted like we were just okay scott died and we're doing fine how are you doing fine we're doing fine i didn't realize until i came out of the grief one day I walked out of it on March 30th of last year, and I remember how it felt. I actually walked out of the grief, and it was not of my doing. It was just I came back to life. I, I sat in a chair, and I felt myself come back, and I knew I was okay. It was four years and one month later. I didn't realize that fear comes out in anger. And and what we tend to forget we if we're living in sobriety is that alcoholism is a disease that lasts a lifetime. And my husband's alcoholism kept him from being the kind of father he wanted to be. It kept me from being the kind of mother I wanted to be. It also kept my husband from being the kind of father he wanted to be. So I have to remember he suffers from his own guilt, his own pains of how he wished things could have been better. And his fears and, and, and all of that alcohol feelings you know surely surf- surfaced with him as they did with me and i had to remember that his fears came out in anger and the anger was not about me but i promise you i took it personally because it sure felt like it but during that period of time i was able to see my husband and watch him interact with sarah and as when he was interacting with sarah there was a softness and a gentleness and a vulnerability that came out in my husband that was unlike anything I had ever experienced with him. He had never allowed himself to be that vulnerable with me or with any adult that I could see. But with that little child, he could let himself be that gentle, uh, that gentle, gentle, soft man. Now, I can't intrude myself and push myself into that and say, that's how I want you to treat me. But what I can know is that he is capable of it. And that's all God asks us to do, is he will allow us to experience something, and then when it's not something that we can experience on a daily basis, we say, God gave me a taste of that, and now he has taken it away. And I always felt like it felt like dangling the carrot in front of me, those experiences where where I have been able to taste something for just a moment, and I feel as though God has taken it away. I, I had to come to believe in my innermost heart that what God was saying is, Beverly, this is what's possible for you. This is what's possible for him. This is what's possible for us. And so I have to always live in in the realm of hope and possibility. Because today is not the last day of the rest of my life. Today is the first day of the rest of my life. Each day is a new beginning. And God isn't here to tease us with moments of gentleness and moments of kindness. God is here to encourage us to keep moving forward and to have hope and not to give up before the miracle, you know. Don't give up before the miracle because you just never know. The next moment you could behold something so fabulous, you know, just so fabulous. It would go down in your journal as an epiphany as one of those epiphanies, and when I saw that softness in my husband, it was an epiphany for me. Um, I have been taught to look for the ways that my husband loved me. There have been two women in my life who have taught me more about love than anybody in my life, And, and I am so grateful for those ladies because they just gave me what they had inside of them, and they taught me how to love. Because I was looking about, everything was, what about me? What about me? You're not doing it my way. And then I was challenged. And I challenge you the same thing. Look for the way that, that your husband or your daughter or your son or your mother or father says they love you. They are not perhaps going to be able to bring you flowers or to hug you or to hold you or to sit, or to just keep going after you saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. My husband is not that kind of a man. So I, I told you yesterday, I buy my own flowers. But what, but what else I have been doing is to look for the ways he says he loves me. And now I, I am allowed on a number of occasions to take this 80 pound golden retriever with me most places I go because he knows my relationship with her is very important. And he makes, he makes a lot of, um, it, it, he, he packs the truck in a way that there's room for her and he takes her cage and we stop along the way so she can go to the bathroom. And I mean, it's just, um, it's an incredible thing that he does for me and I and I know that there's a lot of husbands or wives who don't understand you know each other's in, what's important to them and and there might be somebody that I could be married to that would not even allow my dog to be in the house you know yet alone in my bed <laughs> <laughs> could we open that door maybe? I, would it would not be too noisy? Uh, if it is we can, no let's not, if, uh, no it's too noisy out there um, so I have to look for the way he says he loves me. When I go away in the evening, and I don't go out by myself very often. Dallas is not a safe place to live. Um, when I go away... Uh, I'll come home at night, and when he hears my car come up the driveway, he opens up my garage door, and then um, here, there's him and the dog standing in the laundry room door waiting for me, you know. And he brings me my coffee every day. And um, if I tell him something's broken, he's got it fixed just like that. I hate broken things. I'm just, I'm just nuts. If it doesn't work, it makes me crazy. And he seems to know that intuitively, and he does his very best to, um, to fix things when they're broken, and. um, my responsibility to my husband is to always remember that he is an alcoholic and we suffer from the disease of alcoholism intimacy is not possible if you don't trust so you have to begin no matter what your life experience is with your partner or your child or your mother or father you must begin to trust or there cannot be a development of life and love and intimacy in that relationship But you cannot develop intimacy with another person until you are able to develop intimacy with yourself. And intimacy simply means in to me see. Allow yourself to be open. Several of you said to me yesterday, you are so honest and share such, um, so many parts of your life. I believe that my life is none of my business. And I came to that belief about five or eight years ago. My life is absolutely none of my business. I was born. I was put here. God has something for me to do. And, and, and with his help, if I, the more I allow God to enter my life and help me along, I, I have a life that God needs for, to be used. And hopefully I'm doing God's will and not my will but I haven't got any secrets. I've got about two that I'm not willing to share at a a podium level. Um, If you'd like to talk to me about them one-on-one, I would be most happy to do that with you. But I am willing to share anything about my life with you in hopes that it will touch you, because it is through um, our sharing of our experience, strength, and hope that we relate to each other, that we find out that none of us are different. We've all got these problems. But if we keep it a secret, it doesn't mean, you know, doing in deep inventories and meetings and everything. I hope I'm not doing that for you. What I want to do is share enough of my life with you so that you might be able to identify with me and know that you, if, if I'm okay, you're okay, you know, and I'm willing to do that. I'm, I'm willing to do that. Um, intimacy, is, it means disclosure. That's what, the, that's what the dictionary says. It means disclosure. And each day we commit ourselves to recovery, we find a little more peace. Each conversation we have with our higher power brings us a little more security. Each time we turn our full attention to another person's needs, we feel our own burdens lightened. And uh, peace comes in stages as we continue to accept our powerlessness. The depth of our peace increases. Turning more often to a power greater than ourselves eases our resistance to whatever condition prevails, forgiving Ourselves and others daily heightens our appreciation of all life and enhances our humility. Therein lies peace. Each of us, each are, we are, we each are a necessary part of the creative spirit prevailing in this world. The details of our lives are well in hand. We can be at peace. Who we are is who we need to be. And I don't know how many of you sitting in this room still are wishing you were somebody else, but keep coming back because we all walked into the rooms of Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous hoping we were somebody else. You know, I wanted to be this person wearing those clothes, living in that house, driving that car, and having those children for sure. (laughs) And I stand here today and I tell you I am so happy with who I am, I could almost burst. I would not want to be anybody else. And if you really start to look, I have a little thing that that was actually, when my mom was dying, she was not a very, she was not a spiritual woman, I don't think. But there was a, she was given a Bible by the chaplain. She died at Cottage Hospital in, in Santa Barbara. And the chaplain there gave her a Bible. Inside of there is a little poem about your cross. And what it talks about is, you walk into the room and you see all these crosses there and you pick them all up. You walk in with your own, but there's this whole selection of new crosses. And, and, and you decide that you don't want your cross. It's too much work. It's too big. It doesn't fit right. And so you go into the room and you're able to select a brand new cross. And what usually happens after you've tried all the crosses on is that you're going to walk out of there with your own cross because there's nothing about anybody else's life that would fit you better than the life you've got. Your life is perfect even if it has a lot of problems you know even if you struggle with handicaps and and uh, you know ch- children that are alcoholic children that have died believe it or not your cross is the only one that fits you would not lay it down and pick up somebody else's so stay al- you know don't give up your chair keep your cross things will get better my relationship with my parents <clears throat> is my foundation relationship it's that the it it set the the theme for the rest of my life, you know, and the challenges that I was to have. My mother, of course, influenced who I was right from the beginning. She was my teacher. And she was an angry woman most of the time, but I would like to make sure that I tell you my mother had hopes and dreams, just like every other person who was affected by the disease of alcoholism. You know, she tried to take us on vacations, but what happened is we took alcoholism with us and that spoiled every vacation we ever had and and we set out to do some things in our family, and no matter what they were, you know, it was always uh, alcoholism prevailed in our in our family, and everything was ruined because of the disease. Um, I made promises when I was a young girl that when I got married and had my own children, I wouldn't be like my mother, and I promise you I was everything my mother was times 10, unfortunately. Um... The first time that I had a break from my mom is when my husband and I moved from uh, Utah, and they were here in Southern California, and I we went way over to the East Coast. The first thing she said to me is, I have worked, your father and I have worked our tails off to provide you with a place to live that was, clean and nurturing and wonderful and what have you gone and done you have sold the house and you're moving back to Pennsylvania she says all of our efforts have gone in vain so I moved to Pennsylvania feeling guilty that I was going against my mother I, it was everything she did there was a control this is the end of side one turn your cassette over and who goes for the beer when they call now I had just put a pot roast in in a pressure cooker, and I had turned it on high, and I was searing the pot roast prior to putting the water in it and putting the lid on the pot roast. However, you don't pay attention to pot roast when the alcoholic calls for two beers. You drop everything you're doing, and you take the two beers, and you run outside. Well, I was so intrigued with the log splitter, I forgot that I was searing meat on high in the pressure cooker. And several moments or however long it was, because we tend to go into these blackouts ourselves, I went back into the house to find that my house was blackened. The, the, the plastic handle on the pressure cooker had burned to a crisp, and this my house was black. And I sat in the middle of the kitchen floor, and I went absolutely hysterical, uncontrolled hysteria. And my friend Kay called at that time, and, I, and, and she's my earth person, and she said, Beverly, what is wrong? Well, I went into this long tale about needing to have this perfect house from my mother. And um, she says, Beverly, you have lived away from your mother at a long distance now for 11 or 12 years. She says, Utah, Pennsylvania, now New Jersey. She says, do you have any idea how you are allowing this woman to control your life? And I and I couldn't see what she was talking about until I got into the program. I was I woke up every day obsessed with pleasing my mother, and she did not live next door. She lived three thousand miles away. And it took coming into the program of Al-Anon before I could please myself. Um, that was the control that a sick relationship had on me. And so. Through inventories, I have forgiven her because in order, in order to forgive myself, it is absolutely necessary that you forgive others. And what I had to understand at a level inside of my soul, I mean way down inside of there, if I, if, because I couldn't believe it for me until I could believe it for her, is that she did the very best she could with the light she had to see by. And By allowing myself to believe that at a soul level, I could say to myself, Beverly, you did the very best you could with the light you had to see by, and, and thus start my own recovery. Um, my mother had good intentions. She was creative. Uh, she could sew and cook, and, and she did beautiful handwork. Um, she did take care of us, you know. She provided us with a home and clothing and, and you know, all of the things. But she could not give to us emotionally. Um, she had a great love for animals. I often believe that she should have just had animals and, not, you know, but then again, I'm sure my children, before I got into the program, would have said, "Mother, you should have had two litters of dogs and a litter of cats and not had any children," and they would have been right. In the Courage to Change on page 261, it says, People-pleasing becomes destructive when I ignore my own needs and continually sacrifice my well-being for the sake of others. And I lived from that place. In the Courage to Change on page 207, it says, Why did I continue to deny my own feelings just to gain someone else's approval? So um, that was what I was recovering from. That was a very difficult relationship. My father and I had no relationship at all. My mother intervened in that she didn't I mean it was just I mean any time that I tried to develop a relationship with my father, somehow or other it was never possible. Um, my, as I told you, my father could have intervened in some of the behavior, but he was afraid of her. He was more I, as I know today, he was more afraid of her than I was. Um, he did have a theory that children were supposed to be seen and not heard, but I believe it was because he did not know how to care for children. Until I had that experience in Mississippi with the Allateens, I didn't know what kids were all about. And I just believe that my father's theory on children being seen and not heard was because he didn't know what to do with a kid, so it was easier just to get them out of your hair. Um, I realized I was angry with him after you know when I got in the program because he couldn't protect me. And, and today I know the price he would have paid was great. My father was a fun-loving man with an incredible sense of humor. And the drunker he got, the funnier he got. I mean, he was really, it was like, awful. my mother.